Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can check out the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe, rate, and review, uh, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, um, Good Pods, uh, pretty much any pod cl- podcast platforms is where you'll find us. But the YouTube channel, you will also get exclusive uh, quick take video reviews that I will post every once in a while. Uh, if there's a movie that I don't necessarily feel like doing a longer review about, um, but I do want to say something about it, you can find those at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you will find series like Leaving the Collection, uh, Life Soundtrack, my annual Oscar nominations discussions, as well as film festival coverage like short film block reviews and excerpts from uh, Q&As. That is at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. We're going to be going a little bit back to the Oscars to a certain extent, but we're going to be going back to one particular uh, actor's history in the uh, terms of the Oscar, the Academy Awards, and that is one of the great legends of the golden age of Hollywood, Barbara Stanwyck. Join me to talk about uh, Barbara Stanwyck is a film critic and whom I've known a couple of years online through uh, Twitter, and this is their first time on the podcast, Matthew St. Clair. Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, this being your first time on the podcast, I wanted to do a uh, quick introduction of uh, where people can find you online, and also, uh, what was it that inspired you to start writing about movies? Yeah, sure. My As for my socials, you can find me on Twitter, at FilmGuy619, and also, I, also my, sorry, um, as for my writing, uh, I primarily do f- reviews on Awards Watch and the film experience, and with my writing being, also be, still being sort of all over the place on places like Polygon, Little White Lies, Den of Geek, and I also have my own newsletter, Cinematic, my own subsect cin- called Cinematic Words of a Chaotic Gemini, where I basically do do my own ramblings about the world of cinema, especially with the Oscars. As for my uh, write, as for my what got me into writing about movies, uh, originally I wanted to be a screenwriter, but then somehow, but then when I started my own blog, I realized that film film criticism just uh, so somehow just I don't, I don't know why exactly, but film criticism just is something that I ended up sticking with and became a passion of mine. Yeah, I mean, I I do think there. You know, to to a certain extent, I do think there is some truth to uh, the the idea that film critics are uh, people who did at one point want to do filmmaking. I mean, I know I've I've certainly uh, dabbled in filmmaking myself. So, I mean, I I understand that, but I I think you know I I think that kind of goes more towards us being so interested in the uh, art of filmmaking. Um, not we're not just Necess- we're not just content uh, watching it. We want to actually make it. We want to actually explore the idea of making a film. Is that is that sort of uh, is that sort of where uh, your inspiration, part of your 
evolution from screenwriter to film critic came from? I'm not sure. I do, as I'm, I mean, as I'm writing, I mean, I mean, it is part of our job as film critics, but I do get a, get a thrill out of dissecting the different elements as I'm, uh, as I'm watching a movie, like the, like the cinema, what, like what, like the cinematography and how the symbolism behind that. And, and I I always love talking about performances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, We'll actually go ahead and start into uh, the main subject because this was I, I gave you the opportunity to uh, bring a topic that you wanted to talk about on the podcast. And I know when you when you first brought up the idea of talking about Barbara Stanwyck, especially her Oscar nominated work, I, I got really excited, especially when I went uh, when I went and looked at what movies we would be discussing today, three of them I had not seen. The fourth one, uh, Double Indemnity, I've seen it a couple of times, and it's one of the more famous film noirs out there. Uh, what is it about um, Barbara Sandwick that made you want to uh, talk about her? Well, I've, I've been wanting to just go on a, uh, a podcast in general to talk about uh, classic cinema, Mm-hmm. As I myself be, be, have got since, because I've myself have gotten more in deep in classic cinema and exploring the work of the golden movie stars from the golden age of cinema, as as you said. And, and Barbara Stanwyck, I just I want Barbara Stanwyck because I'm just I'm just someone she's someone whose versatility I'm in such awe of. Like even her nominations are her nominations are each from a different genre. Yeah. All the different her different nominations are a true testament to her strength. How she's done, she can do melo, she can do melodramas, screwball comedies, noirs, psychological noir, psychological thriller. And I, I even even the other day I watched Lady of Burlesque, which is a musical crime comedy. Like she could she could do it all. Yeah. No, and that was that was one of the things that got me so excited when it came to uh, finally starting to watch some of the movies I had not seen of hers is because of the fact that all of these movies really do represent a big range for an actor. Like you said, I mean, we, we see comedy, we see film noir, we see psychological thrillers, we see drama and melodrama. And I, I love, and sometimes all at once, Sometimes in one individual performance, sometimes uh, spread out between the four performances, and you know it's like you were talking about uh, you you were talking about um, classic sim. I mean, you know this has, it's funny because this podcast has nominally become a mo- a film history podcast in a lot of ways. We deal a lot with uh, past films in. Um, on, over here on Sonic Cinema, and so that was part of the reason why I I was so excited because of the fact that it's like, oh, well, this gives me, this fits perfectly with what the podcast is right now, but it was also the fact that, okay, these are three performances, these are three movies at least I have not had a chance to see yet, and a fourth one that is a legitimately great one that I really would love to talk about because... It's just a great example, although we actually have two, two 
Uh, two of these films have Billy Wilder's part of it, and we'll get into that as we get into the uh, individual films. Um, who who are, um, apart from Stanwyck, who are some of the other, as you've gone into uh, Hollywood's golden age, who are some of the other uh, actresses, actors that you, you find yourself drawn to? Joan Crawford. <laughs> A ma- um, who is a master at reinventing herself. Mm-hmm. Catherine Hepburn, uh, Deborah Carr. Yeah. Deborah Carr, Burt, Lan- Burt Lancaster. Mm-hmm. And also my favorite, my favorite male actor ever, mm-hmm. Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I know you've. Uh, I know going back to Deborah Carr for a minute. You, I know you've. You you bring up uh, you you brought up black narcissists several times, and I'll I'll admit I might want I'll probably want to have you back to talk about that movie because I saw it for the first time a few years ago and I absolutely love that film. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean Stanwyck Stanwyck here really does have a range, and I I love um, and all of those actors are just tremendous actors just based on what I've seen of him. I mean, we'll, we'll get to Lancaster a little bit here, too, because of the fact that he's in one of these films. Um, but let's go ahead, and we're going to go in a chrono- chronological order here, as far as release order, and we are going to start with 1937 Stella Dallas. And uh, this is a film from King Vidor, who is who was one of the great early pioneers of cinema, um, and he is basically working in melodrama here, uh, as uh, with Stanwyck as a working class woman wanting to do anything for her daughter, and I I know this was one where when I watched it, it's you definitely see the melodrama really play out and if you get the wrong tone this just doesn't work and it's hokey and it's ridiculous and still has moments of that but at the same time you you because of Stanwyck's performance there's such an empathy for this character that is really just beautiful to watch oh definitely it's very a very transcendent performance Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's watching her very, you know, very lo- loosely wit- will herself into a well-off marriage, and then, mm-hmm. and then, and as she, uh, and not as she becomes a mother, and is like, ah, oh, maybe I, I realize that she has to be a good mother. It's just become so. Yeah, it just becomes so fascinating, and even the 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 final the final scene really really sticks with me. Yeah, no, I mean, and and the thing that the thing that I love so the thing that's so great about this film, I think, is because of the fact that it does start off with her character being one thing and then turning into something very different when we first meet her character she's very much i mean even throughout most of the movie she's still very much interested in 
getting away from the life that she has with her family. She's very much, she feels like that she is bigger than the town that she's a part of. She feels like she needs to be a part of high society. And so that's where the marriage comes in. And then when she, like you said, when she gets pregnant, um, you know, it, it kind of throws a wrench in what her plans are. And then at a certain point, though, she kind of has, she kind of realizes that, well, that's, this is what life is. So how am I going to make the best of that? Yeah, she has to, she realizes she, eventually she tries to find a happy medium between living the life she wants to live and trying to give her daughter the best life that she can. Mm-hmm. For, for some reason, whenever, after seeing Stella Dallas, I mean, I, I try not to compare classics to modern, more modern films, but it gave me weird vibes of, I merely thought of The Lost Daughter with Olivia Colman. I can see that. A similar, a similar character study about a mother tr- struggling to fulfill her own needs and trying to give their, give her children the life they need, they deserve. Even though Lita's a lit, Olivia Coleman's Lita's a little more prickly than Stella. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure even Stella wouldn't have a similar outburst in, in the in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. As, as Lita did. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, one of the one of the things is I I always think is uh, striking is in that you don't really I I personally did not necessarily think about it until as the movie was progressing uh, towards the ending is that you have this you have Stella who you know has is trying to make her daughter Laurel you know, look glamorous and beautiful. And, you know, she wants her to be somebody who's noticed. And, but at the same time, you look at what Stella's outfits are and she doesn't dress nearly as elegantly as her daughter does, but in her mind is still very elegant. And you don't really get that impression. You you don't really... I. Me personally, I didn't really notice. Knows, um, you don't really notice that until the moment where uh, the the teenagers that uh, the kids that Laurel, Laurel was with uh, really start to mock Stella. Right. Yeah, I don't think I noticed that either. I I remember the when I last saw. I remember yeah, those teenagers look look looking at sort of looking down at Stella and her. Or trying to Stella trying to and think or thinking that Stella is making a fool of her own daughter, but yeah, the other yeah, thing I didn't really notice. Yeah, um, you know it's there, but you know going to Stanwyck's performance in particular. I mean, we 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 talked a little bit about the sympathetic side, uh, but I mean, I one of the things that you do. I do love about this movie. Like one of my favorite moments very early on in this film was uh her and Dallas at the movie. Her and Steven at the movies when they're early on in their courtship. It's like there's just this radiance off of her watching the screen that is just you know, and it's it's something that we see a lot in um 
different uh we we see a lot in different movies which have have scenes in movie theaters you know it's like that magic of movies and stuff like that that magic of the experience of watching movies but i think i i think stella dallas might be one of my favorite examples of that because it's not just it's not just about the movies it's it's about stella really embracing that this this life that she's trying to build for herself with steven and uh just kind of seeing seeing the potential here Oh, def- yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, this, you know, and I, your your comparison to the Lost Daughter is actually a very good one. I didn't even, I didn't think about it during the, uh, during my rewatch of it, but it does make a lot of sense because of the fact that I mean, it is very much in the same vein of. Uh, Stella Dallas in terms of, you know, mothers and daughters and that, but it's like, I, I almost feel like this is, even though this is very melodramatic, I mean, especially with the, uh, especially with the, um, oh, what's, what's the name of the, what is the name of the, uh, older, the other, oh, Ed. The Alan Hale oh. character, who is basically around, um, you know, who's basically around Stella, and basic, and you kind of get the impression is kind of responsible for, partially responsible for the disillusion of her marriage to uh, Stephen. You know, it's like that is that is such. There are so many things about that that really just are kind of unnerving when you think about them today yeah um where would where would you put uh stella dallas when it comes to in in the if you were to rank these four movies where where would you put this you know whether in terms of uh stanwick's performance or whether in terms of the film in general well uh Performance-wise, I would say this is the best of her nominated performances. Hmm. I can film see Film-wise, I would film-wise, I would say maybe third or second. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of where I have it as far as film in general. I performance, I definitely see this as being. I I can definitely see this being her best because I do think it gives her the most. I, I think it gives her the most versatility of all the roles in terms of showing a lot of her strengths, a lot of her personality as an actor. I, I definitely would I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, yeah. Do you have anything uh, else that you want to say about Stella Dallas? Um, I'm, I, think, I think I'm good there. Okay. We're going to go to the next one. It is uh, 1941's Ball of Fire, co-written uh, by Billy Wilder and directed by the great Howard Hawks. This one is a this this one is very much a screwball film, and it, I think one of the things that is so amazing about it is that it is a screwball film about. Men working on an encyclopedia, which I never would have expected to be a 
premise that you could make interesting as a comedy, but when you have Stanwyck as a uh, singer who's basically on the lam because her boyfriend who's a gangster's in trouble, I, I, I guess it makes a lot of sense that this this could turn into uh, hijinks. And I mean, honestly, it's like, it, I think as much as I love Double Indemnity, I think this might be my favorite one to watch, and it's just because of the fact that it's, it's very much a screwball comedy, and that's something that Hawks did very well when he did it, whether it's his girl Friday and bring up baby. And then you've got that yeah. script by Billy Wilder that just really um, develops all of these, uh, all of the supporting characters just just wonderfully well around Stanwyck. Yeah. One of my favorite moments is actually, is one the one the one where uh as a as a sugar sugar the character sugar puss O'Shea is uh bursting into dance with the uh with all the writers with all the with all the professors. Yeah. <laughs> the series shows that has ha, shows that as she uh mm-hmm. yeah I, I guess that's what one thing with this group oh, sorry go ahead. No go ahead. Go ahead. Sort of where where the screwball elements come into play, where as she's uh, as as she's hiding as she's hiding away from her boyfriend, sort of things sort of go awry because since she's interrupting their uh, interrupting their ser- mm-hmm. their serious uh, plans. Yeah, well, I, I I I do like this because of the fact that it's like she, I mean, Stanwyck is completely charming from the outset and. You know, at first, it's very much in the uh, sort of in the vein of something a little along the lines of femme fatale and what we see in Double Indemnity. But at the same time, um, she's she's just immediately charming, gets into the screwball aspects of it, and I I I love the fact that this is uh, this is you know, and I it, I was not surprised to learn that this was very deliberately uh modeled off of snow white and the seven dwarves because as soon as oh, I, yeah. as i was watching it it's like this is very snow white and the seven dwarves and sure enough i was looking reading about it it's like <laughs> yeah it, it's kind of it's kind of ripped off of that um but it's, i i love this whole idea that she's a character that is um bring the other people out of their skin and really inspiring them to you know, be a bit different, be a bit looser, and just not quite take things as uh, seriously. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned Snow and the Seven Dwarfs because I, uh, when I was scrolling through Wikipedia one time, I thought the the character of Megara from Hercules was modeled after Barbara Stanwyck hmm. and her screwball comedy persona. Huh. Which makes sense. Yeah. Like from. Even even her even Susan Egan's voice voice sort of emulates from hmm. the way Barbara Stanwyck speaks. Okay, I haven't seen Hercules in a while, so I'll definitely need to uh, check that out sometime. Um, the the thing that I I think this is this is such a part of the reason this movie works for me so well is because of the fact that. It's it's not only got a great hook because of the fact that it's like these these men have gotten to a point and Gary Cooper's character in, in particular is 
finds this garbage man who suddenly introduces them to new slang terms. And so that's something that he's kind of researching. And the fact that uh, Sugar Puss O'Shea really fits, will fit into that as she gets in deeper with the, uh, with the scholars is, it, it's just such a wonderful uh, folding in of all of the different elements of this story. Although I will say it was, it, it did strike me as very weird that the idea of an encyclopedia being a vanity project for somebody, it's like, uh. <laughs> like, do, do people really like commission encyclopedias to be done in the name of somebody? Um, isn't uh. <laughs> that, yeah. that, 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 that just really struck me as inter as weird, but, um, but otherwise, I mean, you go along with it just because of the way that Hawks and Wilder like basically keep things moving at brisk pace. And then just the cast in general is just absolutely yeah. wonderful the way it plays out. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I do agree with what you say about her just being charming from the get-go. Yeah. Uh, I just love how even as she's, she does, she does, she still fears that things won't work out between her and Gary Cooper. She's still like in her familiar, in her own Barbara Stanwyck way. She's like, uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if it'll work, but <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Now this was this was actually my first of the uh, first time watches for me, and it was it was a great way to start off, and it really was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna enjoy these. I'm gonna enjoy going through these movies I hadn't seen, and uh, you know, plus it, plus I mean, Howard Hawks is a filmmaker that I've been uh, wanting to play catch up on for a bit, and so this was a, another chance to watch one of his movies for for the. Uh, first time um what what are some of your what are some of your favorite screwball comedies uh oh good question oh i uh oh i, I like bringing a baby mm. i don't know if don't know if it counts as really screwball but holiday okay the other uh the other katherine hepburn gary grant carrie grant movie from that year okay the off the awful truth <laughs> <laughs> with Irene Don, mm -hmm. who was nominated alongside Sam McFerrin, Stella Dallas. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think one of my favorites is Arsenic and Old Lace with Cary Grant. Um, you know, it's, but bringing up baby is wonderful. I mean, we we talked about it on the podcast last year, I believe, with uh, in part of our established classic series, and um, yeah, I mean, that was you know the the thing that is remarkable about a filmmaker like Hawks is how the the way that he can I mean Wilder is the same way uh, the way they can go from genre to genre they can do slapstick comedy they can do screwball comedy but they can also do serious filmmaking serious drama as well in film noir and I I that is that is something that is very um, I, I feel like we, we haven't seen that so much over the past decades of filmmaking. Kind of every, kind of, kind of most filmmakers kind of stay in their 
lane to a certain extent. Like most of them don't really uh, branch out into different genres the way that uh, the way it, uh, other older filmmakers did. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we do have Spielberg sort of. Yeah. Go, going from place to place, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, and even Gre- Greta Gerwig, she's going, who's going from Little Woman to Barbie, yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> which I'm really excited for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Spielberg is Spielberg's definitely a good example, but I mean, at the same time, he's I, I would say with him, like he he hasn't done a huge amount of comedy over the years, like straight up comedy. I mean, most of his movies have some entertainment factor and some comedy in them. But I mean, it's, it's rare to see him do something, you know, that is, that is basically done for laughs. I mean, you know, it's like we have 1941, but I'm sorry, that's not that good of a movie. But, um, but I mean, I would also say Ron Howard is another example of that. Um, I, I, I think he, he's somebody who's, for the most part, gone pretty pretty successfully from genre to genre over the years, um, and uh, but yeah, Greg Gerwig is a good example, and um, yeah, I I do think there are some, you know, it's certainly not to say that every filmmaker does that, but yeah, I mean, some, you know, it's like Greg Gerwig is a good example because you've got Lady Bird, which is basically coming of age film, you've got Little Women, which is literary adaptation then you've got barbie which is basically <laughs> going to be silly kind of big budget comedy and you know it's like that it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how that one succeeds um but yeah it, it's and I'll, no go ahead and also yeah, so even, even though i mean even though he's no longer no longer with us, but Jonathan Demi, I think, was yeah. another great example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not as I'm not as familiar with uh, early Demi as I should be. But uh, yeah, he was from everything I'm familiar with. Yeah, he, he is another excellent example of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I definitely I I'm guessing I'm guessing this is one of the ones that you have. It, going back and forth with Stella Dallas in terms of two and three of these four. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's basic. I think I give it, I think I give it a slight edge over Stella Dallas just because of the fact that it's, it's more outwardly funny. And I think there are some times where in Stella Dallas, where the melodrama kind of gets the better of it to a certain extent, but, um, you know, I, 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 I would very much, they're very much in a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same, on the same level, uh, is what I'm trying to say. But, uh, yeah, we will continue with the one that I had seen and actually saved for today because I had seen it before. And it is uh, 1944's Double Indemnity, directed, co-written and directed by Billy Wilder is a one of the most famous uh of the 40s film noirs it is uh barbara sandwick and fred mcmurray and uh if you are familiar with lawrence kazan's body it very much uh it very much is inspired by this one uh up to a point 
And one of the things that I've always been in, intrigued about with these two, those two movies in particular, is the fact that they both found their own ways into this story and out of it in a way that are very compelling. But I mean, I, I do think I, w I was rewatching it this morning and I, I remembered completely just from the opening where we first see McMurray start to uh, talk into the recorder, uh, just why this is such a great film. And the fact that the, the flashback structure works so well in this, in telling this story of crime and lust. Oh, de definitely. And, uh, and uh, as for uh, Barbara Stanwyck, I think even, I guess, like when, when she, uh, when she first enters, she's all, always just so in control, in control of, the, yeah, in control of every frame she's in. Even when she, even when she's just, when she's staring with her, gazing with her glasses, she's mm. still in, in utter, con in such utter control. Yeah, I think that's in that is really the uh that is really a uh great credit to any great actor that's it's a sign of any great actors that are ability to just command the frame regardless of what they're doing. I mean, I, I think this is it you really do see that in all of these films. I mean, we'll get to sorry wrong number, but um you know, like like you said, from the second Stanwyck uh, shows up like she's she she basically commands the screen. You basic and she's in control of the situation too. Like she knows what she's doing, showing up, uh, you know, showing Walter Neff that like her the way she's dressed in that moment. Like she knows exactly what she's doing. And uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's just such a, uh, I, I love that, you know, in both this and Ball of Fire, she, she gets a chance to be very flirty. And I, but I think one of the things that I love and one of the things that probably, uh, Wilder realized he could get out of her by casting her in this is the fact that she's flirting a completely different way here than she was in Ball of Fire. Like she's very much, in a comedic mode here in in the earlier film, but here she's very icy and like you said, yeah. very, very much in control. Yeah. And also what's what's so genius about her performance is that with uh yeah, with the way she holds her hands and mm -hmm. and gives an ominous stare, she's sort of it makes it clear she's got tricks up her sleeve, but she still sort of tiptoes the line between between ske scheming scheming the protagonist out of between uh, want to double cross the between feeling like she wants to double cross the protagonist, but mm -hmm. also whether she wa she wants and also trying to steal his heart. Yeah, no, that is that is an excellent point. I mean, even even you know the the funny thing is it's like. The the flashback, the flashback structure is always fascinating to me, and the way that filmmakers approach it, because of the fact that I mean, by especially excuse me, especially this one with McMurray telling the st 
story, we kind of are, we kind of feel like we, we are looking at it from his perspective, but then you have moments throughout the film where Stanwyck is the only one on screen. And it's basically from, like, when she comes to his apartment while Keyes is there, and we see her on the outside. And I love that, you know, but you don't think about it because of the fact that you're just so caught up in the narrative by that point, and you're so caught up with what these two characters are doing and trying to do you you look for moments that where you get you you might be able to figure out where she's going, especially if you've watched it over again. If you've watched it more than once, if you've watched it more than once, it's something that uh, you know. Well, can you tell that this is what? Sometimes you can tell certainly what what she's trying to do, like you said. But on other times, it's like. Does she? Do we see senses that she's got this other ulterior motive with Neff that is later realized late in the film be, by Keys, where she's roping her stepdaughter's ex-boyfriend into it as well for her own gain and basically saying Neff up to fail. And I, yeah. I love that. That is one of the things that I love about rewatches um, on films like this. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Mm -hmm. You know, and and one of the things that uh, going going to some of the other performances here, one of the things I really noticed this time around uh, in the dynamic between McMurray and uh, Edward G. Robinson. You know, Edward Gene Robinson is somebody who's always searching for the truth. He's always trying to make sure he's trying to, he thinks he can get to the truth of any situation. But it seems like the way he approaches it is very slimy in his, in his, in, in his persona. But McMurray is very cool and he's dishonest all throughout most of this film. I, I, I personally, I don't know if you noticed that, but that that's something I noticed that was it's a really interesting uh, contrast between those two characters. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a while since I since I've seen it, but but I, I guess I guess I would agree that he does in a I guess he's Robinson does a a fine a fine job at being the kind of noir character who who sort of hint who hints that he knows that. The protagonist has a mm -hmm. is a is getting his getting his hands pretty filthy, but he doesn't. But he's just wait waiting for that big, the big, that big collapse. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, oh, throughout this film, I mean, we we see as the story unfolds. I I love that we get this, the way this story unfolds. It really does bring into. Um, like this, this sense of just building dread, building tension, and it's like you instinctively, from a moral standpoint, we obviously would like to see them get their comeuppance, but at the same time, because of the fact that it's a movie, because of the fact that these two characters are our main characters, you also want to see them 
you know, get away with it together. And I think that's one of the things that Kasdan does so brilliantly in Body Heat in leaning into what he leans into with this story. But with Wilder, you know, and you, you kind of see it in some of his other films as well, he, he there there are times where he very much leans into the uh, tragic hero angle, the tragic protagonist uh, yeah. angle of it. I mean, you, you look at this, you look at Lost Weekend, you look at Sunset Boulevard, and I mean, you can you can see that uh, he he's he's very much he, he he's not necessarily he's a realist when it comes to uh, when it comes to how these type of protagonists end up in real life. Yeah, you could you could even kind of see that in the noir films from that era, where even if even if the even Lever to Heaven, which yeah, it doesn't really have a sad and i mean i mean i mean it doesn't have a happy ending but more more of a bitter they have a happy ending but or it doesn't have a tragic ending but still not entirely a happy one mm-hmm. or the post the postman always rings twice yeah or or gilda even the ones that didn't have sad or tragic endings still ended on a bitter would always end on a bittersweet note Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Probably, probably because of the Hayes Code, which always for, which always uh, made it forbidden for, forbidden for any, any movies involving adulterous affairs to have happy endings. Yeah, yeah, that's very true, actually. Um, yeah, and it's it's a, it I I love. You know, and that's one of the things that makes Wilder such an interesting filmmaker and the way he told his stories, like in this, like in Sunset Boulevard, the way he would he he would work towards breaking the uh you know, he very very not necessarily breaking the Hayes Code, but at least subverting it enough to make things uh to keep things interesting and to uh you know, get to some of those real places that, you know, the, the Hays Code kind of almost didn't want you to go. Right. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is by far, I mean, I, I don't, I'm, 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 I'm sure you and I both have this as our number one, as far as our, as far as these films, these four films. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an all timer. I mean, it's, it was it was just added to the Criterion Collection. It's 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 an absolute uh, must see, especially if you um, are a fan of some of Wilder, others of Wilder's work. Um, this is this is one that is absolutely essential. I mean, especially if you're a film noir fan, and uh, this is this is just a this is one of the definitive examples of the genre. Uh, definitely. So we are going to close of these four with 1948's Sorry, Wrong Number, um, based on a radio play. Uh, basically based on a radio play where Barbara Stanwyck plays a 
woman who is laid up in her bed and picks up the phone and hears something over the phone that implies that a murder is going to happen. Uh, it's it's a very familiar, you know, if this this is the type of story that Rear Window would later do from Hitchcock and I mean other other theater, other places other films have done this as well. Um, this is one Burt Lancaster plays her husband, who kind of seems to uh, who marries her, but is doesn't really seem too terribly engaged with her. And I I think that is you know that that really lays on the uh, isolation that her her character feels throughout the film. Definitely, I, I I do I do think the the sort of one loca- limited location I think really it contributes to its claustrophobic feel. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about flashbacks and double indemnity, but I have to say I do love the way that this film uses flashbacks as well to help tell the story and set up the uh, premise of. Um, of the fact that these, why this couple is the way it is, and what makes is kind of is what led led uh, Leona Stanwyck's character into this uh, situation, or at least why she's uh, laid up, because it's it's very much something that she's, you know, as after a certain point, we we start to wonder. You know whether she truly is, um, whether whether she truly is uh, as sick as she seems to be. And we also see just kind of how incompetent her husband is. Yeah, yeah, and, that's, <laughs> and it's funny because of the fact that you uh, you look at the uh, you look at the poster for this, and it looks like Lancaster is. It, it almost looks like Lancaster is somebody who's being set up. That character is being somebody who's setting up what's going to happen to the character. But when we get to the end, you're you're just not you. you we're not as certain about that. And he right. and he he's basically <laughs> just a character who gets too deep into crime. So in very in in. Kind of the same way. This is this is very familiar to. Uh, this is kind of a film noir, in with a possible murder mystery uh, laced onto it. So. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see where the noir elements come into play. Mm-hmm. But she, uh, and we know she's. I mean, she's not also. We know Leona as a. But it is a completely different character from Phyllis. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, she she's she's not in she's that and that's one of the things that's that's part of the reason why this quartet of films was so interesting to go through because of the fact that it shows Stanwyck is somebody who's very comfortable playing different forms of you know, different levels of control. Like, she's completely in control and 
double indemnity, but in this one she doesn't have any control really at all. Screaming like a banshee. No, not really. No. Why? And um, yeah, I I think uh, the way um, it, if I if I had one complaint, I do feel like the film does the story does kind of drag and kind of gets a little too much into the melodrama. Where I think King Vidor did a really good job maintaining a a tone of for the melodrama. And still Dallas, I think this one kind of leans a little too much into it overall. Well, uh, sell it, sell it. Sorry, uh, sorry. What was that? Oh no. Uh, what was saying? So basically, what I was saying was, I I do feel like this one, the story kind of drags a little bit, um, and I also think the story gets a little too melodramatic as well. I I don't think it maintains that same level of tone the same way um, something like Wait Until Dark uh, later in the Audrey Hepburn thriller in the 60s does. I, I think that um, I, I kind of feel like this one, you know, unlike Cell, I, I felt like Cell Dallas when it came to melodrama, I felt like it maintained a very steady tone. I, I think this one, the tone kind of gets away from it to a certain extent. Yeah, sort of. I mean, again, the, I mean, if, I mean, the, if anything, the, the limited setting is what it try, tries to help the movie maintain its psychological thriller elements, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like as we went into the flash, as we get, as we uh, get the flashbacks that get further into Stanwyck and Lancaster's relationship. It's like, uh, it's not. It, we're lo- we're losing a bit. It's like we're losing a bit of momentum here. Yeah, well, and I I think it's also <laughs> the fact that, and I I also think it's the fact that the more hysterical the film needs Stanwyck to be, I I feel like it it kind of goes a little too far into that kind of mellow dramatic just uh just losing control of things without really being able to uh maintain the sense of anxiety i i feel like she portrays extremely well at the start of at at the start of the film i i think she does a great job with vulnerability in the beginning of the film but as it gets more and more uh as it gets deeper and deeper into the larger plot i think it, it it you you kind of you kind of lose something in the uh performance it's not necessarily stanwick's fault it's just the fact that the filmmakers just couldn't really nail that tone i think the way that some of these other filmmakers did yeah i would agree with you there that's pro- probably out of all the uh, the movie she was nominated for this one is uh ranks lowest for me yeah like it's a it's a it's a fun b-movie thriller for like a saturday night but yeah. I, no, and, I, and i get why she would and i get why she was nominated for it because oh, it, it is uh it, it's a it does the movie doesn't work as well without her yeah no i mean i i very much i i'm very much with you i mean it's very much a b-movie and uh 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely my least favorite of the four films, but I mean, it's still it's still a good movie, and I'm glad I was I'm glad I got to see it, and I'm glad I got to see it in the context of her work in general because of the fact that I, again, I do think there's a sense of vulnerability to her character in this that I don't really feel like even in something like Still Doubts, I don't necessarily feel like we see. I, I do feel like to a certain extent, Stella Dallas, even when it comes to her realizing that her she's kind of seen as a joke to her daughter's friends, she still has control over her daughter making the choice that realizing that the choice that needs to be made is the right one. Yeah. I mean, even though, even though she, even though it means risking not seeing her daughter, yeah, she still has to, like I said before, like find the happy medium between making sure she's happy while also trying to fulfill her own happiness, which is, I'm sure it's a common I mean, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure it's a common struggle that parents have. Yeah, I would imagine but they, as, well, as well. Yeah, I mean, they, no matter what, they always have to consider their own child's needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially, I, I can't imagine what it's like, especially I can't imagine what it's like for uh, single parents having to yeah. do that as well, you know. And... Uh, this, you know, I, the the thing is, it's like even the the four films here. I I think, you know, this is this is one of the things that I I find so interesting about watching older movies now is that you know, so many of these movies we do hold up as just classic movies, and you know, we we think that you know it's it's hard to imagine. Until you start to dig into Hollywood history, it's like when you hear about these these titles, you think, oh, these have to be great titles because they're ones that you've heard about and stuff like that. Or they were nominated for Oscars. Well, I mean, not necessarily because the Oscars then are basically the same as the Oscars now where it's like they yeah. don't always get right. And um, I mean, I would certainly say I, I think Certainly for the first three films that we talked about with Stanwyck, I would certainly say that it makes a lot of sense and I can see why and appreciate why she got nominated for those three. I mean, you know, we you you said that uh, Sorry Wrong Number makes sense why she got nominated, and I agree with that as well. But at the same time, it's one, yeah. of, those, it's one of those nominations where it's like you, you kind of are left scratching your head. It's like, Really was that was that one of the top performances of that year? <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, just, I mean, even, even though she was on her fourth try, it's like I don't mind her losing this one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the winner that year was the when she lost to Jane Wyman for Johnny Belinda, mm-hmm. which is like okay. I mean, my. I mean, the real best leading actress performance that year wasn't even nominated, so. Yeah. <laughs> by, the, by that, I mean Norma Shearer for The Red Shoes, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Jane, Jane Wyman, like, she's, that, that's that's one I get. 
Yeah. And she is very, she is very good in Johnny Belinda, so. Mm -hmm. But yeah. But um, then again, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. And then, and then you have a case. I mean, then you have something like double indemnity, where she had the misfortune of competing against another equally impressive performance, which was Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight, mm -hmm. which is a. I mean, it's like I guess I I could take away Bergman's Oscar, but the other because Bergman has three, but the other two that Bergman want performances won for are not representative of her best work. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah. But I think that I think that just goes to show why uh, why Stanley probably never won because of competition. Timing, mm -hmm. flashier competition. What are, what are some other uh, Bergman, or sorry, what are some other Sandwich films uh, that you would uh, recommend people uh, check out in addition to these four? Oh, definitely The Lady Eve. Definitely The Lady Eve, which is my also my... As much as I love her in Ball of Fire, my favorite of her performances from that year. So, gene, a work of sensual comedic genius. And also, I just got my uh, my Criterion DVD for that just came in the mail yesterday. Okay. So, def definitely check. Uh, All I Desire, which came out 20, 70 years ago, which feels, that's a it's right on the Criterion channel right now. You should, I believe, is leaving at the end of this month. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that, that's that's like a perfect amalgamation of her uh, her previous her previous her previous work. Okay. Her uh, of her uh, her knack for playing complicated mother figures like Stella and Stella Dallas. Okay. And also her her romantic side that she's shown in her previous work, her, right. her previous work like the Lady Eve and and Ball of Fire. All right, yeah, I uh, especially since all all I desire is a Douglas Sirk film, and that's that's a filmmaker I haven't quite gotten into. I might try to check that out in the next few days uh, since it's. On Criterion, um, yeah, I, I will, and obviously, and Lady Eve is another one that I need to uh, get get to as well. Um, but yeah, uh, Matthew, uh, very much. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm I'm glad we finally been able to talk, and I I, I do want to thank you for bringing this subject because of the fact that it's it's. I, I'm somebody who I, I have no problem. I, I love being able to watch new films for podcasts. It's like as much as I, as much as I enjoy watching some of the films over that I, I talk about, um, watching, watching something new really, I, I appreciate that because of the fact that it's, it's just a uh, fun experience to learn something new. About film. 
Yeah, definitely. And I even watched some of the, before this podcast, I even watched some of her, uh, some of her unnominated work to get a fuller idea of her. Yeah. Yeah. And of this, her. Yeah. And this. Of her, of her range. Yeah. 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 And it's really, and, and it's, it's funny because of the fact that it's like, I don't necessarily, there are times where I'm not sure how accurate that is. Like if you get an actor who's been in several, who's been nominated for several Oscars, how representative of it is their range? I mean, I think there's several that you can say that. I think there are far more that you can say that about, but really sometimes the nominations are more representative of the Academy's taste more than the actor and their range, especially if they're nominated several times. Yeah, I, w- I- yeah, I mean, sometimes they, the the performances that the person is, the kind of performances that someone is nominated for aren't as representative of how, of their strong skill set as the performances they weren't recognized for. Like, one great example is a uh, one example I would say is uh, Deborah Carr, who we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who's been nominated six times, and she's great in the performances she was nominated for, but when I think of a great Deborah Carr's best work, I think Black Narcissus or The Innocents or mm-hmm. Tea and Sympathy, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp or Nicole Kidman, I think it's another great example. Yeah. Like how they, they nominated her for being the Ricardos, but not the Northman, Dogville, To Die For, Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. Her more daring, provocative work that really shows how great she can be. Yeah. I absolutely adore Dogville. I, I thought she was wonderful in Dogville. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. But, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I think that's, you know, and I, I definitely think that's something that, you know, I, I think that's, especially when it comes to classic actors like Stanwyck, I, I think that's that's one of the things that, you know, Stanwyck, I, I think, is almost, there are times where I, I would say Stanwyck, to a certain extent, based on these four performances, might be an outlier in terms of their Academy Award nominated work being a really good representation of their work in general. Um but you know, aside from stuff that they did that is more adventurous, and uh, you know, you mentioning Kidman, that's an excellent example because you know, yeah, I mean, I even I don't even know anybody who necessarily feels like being the Ricardos is representative of Nicole Kidman or in her bets, and uh, you know, it's it's. It's it's really kind of disheartening to see her nominated for that, but like you said, not for like Eyes Wide Shut or To Die For. But um, yeah, uh, if where can uh, you you mentioned you have a uh, newsletter? Where can people find that? Oh, it's on Substack. It's cin- called Cinematic Words of a Chaotic Gemini. Mm-hmm. I actually just did a. Uh, to my own, a few words on the 95th, the, the 95th Academy Awards, which happened a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. just to wrap up the, the ceremony and the winners. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it was it. Yeah, I mean, and and check out check out his uh, Substack. It's it's always a it's always a good read. And um, yeah, I I was you know going talking a little bit about the uh, going we'll, we'll go a little bit about the Oscars. Um, overall, I I you know it's like this is one of those this is probably the first year in a while. I I feel like there's not a whole lot that I can overly complain about. I, I feel like for the most part, the choices were very good ones. Um, and out know it's weird. I, I, I feel a bit uncomfortable with that because of the fact that I'm so used to being upset with the Academy's <laughs> choices. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, for the most part, I thought the winners were pretty, pretty solid. I mean, I, I mean, I'm pretty mixed on, Brendan Fraser winning for the whale. Is that, I, I was I mean I like I like Brendan Fraser, but I do wish that his he won for a better comeback vehicle. Mm-hmm. And and even Alcoy on the Western Front winning best score, which yeah. Okay. As <laughs> as <laughs> as as a as a composer who is obsessed with best original score, yeah, I I was I was not a fan of that win at all. Uh, that was, yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean it's okay. It's not a terrible one, but at the same time, it's 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 not my least favorite all-time score win. But it's it's not far from it because there were some genuinely great performances genuinely great scores nominated this year that didn't get wins that would have liked to have seen. But, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's one of the things about the Oscars that is always kind of, always kind of fascinating is the fact that it's like seeing what they, I mean, I, you, I, you know, it's like I'm, I'm somebody who, nominally was a fan of the whale, but I completely respect why people are not fans of it. I, I understand why people are not fans of it. And it you know, and it's funny because the episode after this, we're talking about Darren Aronofsky and we are talking about the whale. So you'll get my compl- you'll get my discussion on the whale next episode. But um you know I mean I know one of the ones that got people up in arms was Jamie Lee Curtis wing for everything everywhere all at once. I mean, especially, I I get it, especially with uh, Stephanie Sue not winning. I Because I do think she's she was by far the best, best of those two performances from everything everywhere all at once. But at the same time, I mean, it's like, you know what? It's not a bad performance. It's not a bad performance. I mean... You know, seeing Jamie Lee Curtis win for something that unusual of a performance that gives her that a lot of different things to do, you can't really argue with that considering some of the performances that do win. Yeah, yeah. And also the fact that she was, the fact that a lot of her Oscar worthy work has come from genre movies. Yeah, yeah. For her to win an Oscar for a genre movie, I think is pretty. No, it, it's. I, mean, I, 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 I don't want to begrudge seeing an actress whose work I've admired since childhood getting her big moment. Yeah. Like, sure, I would have, I would have brought maybe Stephanie Sue or Carrie Condon from Banshees of Inisherin. Mm-hmm. 
but I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind Curtis winning too much. Yeah. No, but, I mean it's it's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, you you think about it in terms of the nominees, and it's like, yeah, you can poke some holes in, it, but ultimately speaking, I mean, like like you, it, it's Jamie Lee Curtis. Like I've been watching her since childhood. It's like I I'm happy for her to win. So it's it's I can't get too upset about it. And like you said, it's for genre, which. I mean, you know, they they don't do a whole lot of genre appreciation, so. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure An- Angela Bassett's losing reaction is what, another thing that gets people. Yeah. About Jamie, like it's I mean, who knows if she's gonna get another chance like that? And who knows? Who knows if that? Yeah. I mean that's absolutely true, but I mean at the same time, I mean you and you're you're very much right on that, and it's like, but at the same time, it's like, ah, do you really want to see Angela Bassett wing for a Marvel movie, really? But then again, they gave it to Joaquin Phoenix for a DC movie, so yeah, you know, I I'm not sure I feel about that one either, especially since he was passed over for. Some truly phenomenal work this past decade, but uh, definitely, yeah. Um, now, but Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. I'm glad we've thanks for having me. Finally, been able to talk and to have this conversation. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to. It was, it was a pleasure to. It was a pleasure to be on. I'd like to thank Matthew for joining me on the podcast. I'd like to thank Matthew for giving me a chance to uh, see some classic films I have not seen in a while. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where, like I told him in episode, I, I love being introduced to new movies and new classic movies that I haven't seen before. And this one really gave me an opportunity to. And uh, so I, I do want to thank him for that. And I, I, I've already told him I definitely want to have him on again to uh, talk some more classic movies because I'm excited about that. That's going to be it for this episode of the uh, Sonic Cinema Podcast. The next episode, as I kind of teased in uh, this episode, is going to be with a favorite filmmaker of mine, as we discuss the work of Darren Aronofsky. Uh, And also, uh, I've got some other great discussions coming up. Uh, Some return guests, some guests being on for the first time. We're gonna have some more classic movies, some films I'm not as familiar, I'm not familiar with, some that I very much am. And I'm I'm really looking forward to all these conversations. Check us out once again at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There's a lot of great content there. And um, also check me out at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Wherever you click, wherever you listen to podcasts, click subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, as well as my reviews at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you.